All right, Acts chapter 18, um, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them, so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid to speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We ask, God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, open our hearts and minds, illuminate this word, that it would transform us, that it would renew our minds, that it would conform us to the very image of Jesus. That, Lord, as David said in the Psalms, Lord, that we would hide your word in our heart, that we would not sin against you. And we ask God in your love and in your mercy that you would give to us grace to obey you. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So remember, Paul was there um, in Athens and more than likely, Paul was in Athens at least a month. Um, well, we know he, we, he would have had to have been there at least a month. Uh, it's very likely that he might have been there uh, for several weeks or, or maybe uh, several months even. Uh, because Paul came to know the city of Athens, he went to the marketplace daily, and eventually his ministering in the synagogue in Athens and his ministering in the marketplace daily uh, gained him an invitation uh, to go and speak to the council uh, that met there on the Areopagus. And Paul talking to, giving the gospel to that council there in Athens was kind of the culmination of his time there. And we know from the record in the scriptures, in, from uh, Luke's record here, that when Paul finished his address to the council there, that there was at least one member of that council that followed Paul, and there were others. And so when Paul left Athens, he left having made new disciples. Uh, and this is what Paul was doing. This is why he was on his missionary journey. But now remember, before he had come to Athens, he had been in Thessalonica, he had been in Berea, and it was from Berea that they sent him across the sea and he landed there in Philippi and eventually came to Athens. Uh, and when he comes now from Athens to Corinth, Corinth was a large city. Corinth was a very large city, a center of commerce. Um, we have two letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that are specifically written to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems um, it was uh, made up mostly of Gentiles, and so there were a lot of things 
uh, that had to be worked out there, and we see that in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. So this is where Paul has come to after he leaves Athens. And when he gets to Corinth, the scripture tells us that he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So this is Aquila and Priscilla that we'll see later on in Acts, who begin to minister with Paul and work with Paul. And they had come from Italy, they had come from Rome to Corinth, because Claudius, that's Emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Claudius was the emperor of Rome from about 41 A.D. to 54 A.D. In 54 A.D., he was poisoned. Uh, it was dangerous being the emperor. It was maybe good while it lasted, but it didn't always last very long. Um, and, and so it's this Claudius. So we don't know exactly. It doesn't give us the date, but we know Claudius was, was uh, gone by 54 um, so the guess is that this probably is somewhere around 51 A.D. And nevertheless, it's sometime during Claudius' reign. Uh, and Claudius made the decision to expel all the Jews out of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla left Rome, come to Corinth, and they meet Paul. Uh, and more than likely, the reason they met was because they had the same occupation. So Aquila and Priscilla were Jews who had been living in Rome, had been expelled by Claudius. Aquila and Priscilla are actually Roman names. So these are Jews going by Roman names. Uh, Aquila was born in a Roman province called Pontus. Remember, Paul was born in, in Tarsus. And remember, Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, when they are getting ready to um, uh, beat Paul, um, and the, the Jews are trying to kill him because of his, the message of the gospel, and Paul is taken into custody, and he is being tried and questioned, and he's treated roughly at one point, and he says, is that any way to treat a Roman citizen? And, and great fear came upon the people guarding him because you didn't do that to a Roman citizen. Um, Aquila was a Jew who lived in Rome, but he obviously was not a Roman citizen because he was made to leave the city. He didn't have the rights of a citizen. And so even if you lived in Rome, you weren't necessarily a citizen of Rome. We say we're citizens of Taylor because we live in Taylor. But to be a citizen of Rome didn't mean you just lived in Rome. It meant you had the rights of a Roman citizen. And so Aquila and his wife Priscilla were tent makers by trade. And Paul, more than likely when he comes to Corinth, knowing that he's going to um, perhaps be in this city, he had to make a living. And so he had a trade, and his trade was being a tent maker. And so However they met, more than likely, Paul knew where tent makers would be doing their trade, and he went there, and he meets Aquila, and he meets Priscilla, and they uh, become friends. And so the scripture tells us that um, as they did their trade together, we see throughout the record here in the book of Acts that Paul becomes good friends with Aquila and Priscilla, and actually, it is Priscilla who helps Paul greatly in his work in the ministry. And so, tents in antiquity, the word tent maker here is an interesting word. When you think of a tent, you think of something made out of polyester or nylon, right? Or we used to have a tent that was made out of heavy canvas, you know, out of cotton. Um, and you might think, you know, tents were like that, but they weren't. In antiquity, tents were mostly made out of leather. And more than likely, when it says Paul was a tent maker, more than likely what it really is telling us is that Paul was a leather worker uh, because that's what tents were made out of. And, 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 and what Paul was doing... Um, it was his trade. It was how he 
earned uh, his living. And we see this throughout Paul's epistles when Paul talks about how I didn't take anything. And he said, not because it wasn't my right to take something, but Paul was an apostle. He was an evangelist, you might say, what we would think of as an evangelist today. Paul was not a pastor in the sense that he was planted in a city and he stayed in a city and shepherded a group of people. Paul went all over the Roman Empire and he established churches and equipped local pastors and local believers to then disciple and shepherd the people. And so uh, this is what Paul did in his missionary journeys. He would go establish churches, then he'd go back and he would revisit those churches and check on those congregations. And so Paul had a trade by which he earned a living, and that trade was tent making or leather working uh, more than likely. And so Paul meets a Priscilla and or Aquila and Priscilla, and he begins to work with them. In fact, it says that he came to them and he stayed with them and worked. So they all worked together in their trade here in Corinth. In verse 4, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So this was Paul's pattern. Paul was in Corinth to preach the gospel. Paul was a tent maker by trade, but he did not live to make tents. And we need to understand the difference. We all have different occupations. We might be different tradesmen with different occupations. We may have different lines of work that we do. And we go to our our work, and we work faithfully, we work diligently, we work hard, because that's a witness to the gospel. Just like I told the children, your obedience to your parents is a witness to the gospel. Well, your work ethic is a witness to the gospel. So when the world looks at Christians, the world should see that Christians are the hardest workers, the best workers. They do the best job. They make the best product. You know, this is the pro- what we call the Protestant work, work ethic that came out of the Reformation. I believe Paul was the best tent maker. I believe Aquila and Paul were the best tent makers because they did it unto the glory of God. And this is what we saw reestablished, reformed, and, and come out of the Reformation when what we call today the Protestant work ethic because In that time of the Reformation, in the Middle Ages, when you had this separation of clergy. So you had the priesthood and you had the laity. And it was more than just a separation of of vocation. Um, The priesthood were considered the aristocracy. Because priests could read, priests were educated, priests were elevated in the culture, And then there was everybody else. So if you weren't born into nobility, into royalty, or you weren't part of the priesthood, then you were with the rest of the people. And there was a real divide, a real designation. Well, here comes the Reformation, and the Reformation began to abolish those things. Because the Reformation went back to the Scripture And in the scripture, we see the principle of of the the priesthood of all believers. So what does the Bible say about saints? We learned this when we studied the book of Revelation, right? We are kings and priests unto our God. Now, you might not have royal blood by earthly standards flowing through your veins. You might not have any hope of ever sitting on the throne in England because you're not in any way, shape, or form related to the royal family. But the Bible says you are royalty. In fact, the Bible says you are a royal priesthood. And so this this reality of royalty and priesthood has very significant meaning. And there was a time in our world, in our history, where for centuries, if you weren't royalty or you weren't the priesthood, You are relegated to a lower life, a common life. 
here comes the Reformation and the, the people like Luther and Calvin who said if you're a shoemaker, if you're a leather worker, whatever you are, if you're a carpenter, if you shovel manure, whatever you do, you do it as unto the Lord. You do it to the glory of God. And you be the best manure shoveler. You be the best shoemaker. You be the best carpenter. You be the best that you can be at what you do because you don't do it as unto men. You do it as unto the Lord. And out of that came this thing we call the Protestant work ethic. Today, we also have a system we call capitalism that was born out of that. And guess what people began to do? They began to want to buy shoes from this guy over here because his shoes seem to last longer. His shoes seem to be better. His shoes don't seem to pull apart and come apart like, like other people's shoes do. What's the difference? They might not know what the difference is, but the difference was that he, he made his shoes as unto the Lord. He made his shoes to the glory of God. And he didn't do that so he could sell more shoes. He did that to glorify God. But in the process of glorifying God, guess what happened? He sold more shoes. And so, when we talk about these things, Paul comes to Corinth and Paul is there and he's applying his trade Paul applied his trade to make a living, but he didn't live to make tents. He lived to make disciples. Paul's occupation was not tent maker. Paul's occupation was disciple maker. And this is really the way that we should look at our own lives. We all have different vocations. We all have different callings. But as believers in Christ, we are all called to make disciples. As believers in Christ, no matter what we do to earn a living, no matter what our work is, we should work as unto the Lord. And the men and the people around us should see us and they should see a difference because what we do, we do as unto the Lord. So Paul's purpose was to preach the gospel. Making tents was a provision for him, but making disciples was his true occupation. This is what the world wants to do with our faith. The world wants to say right now, you can have your faith, but you need to keep your faith contained. Because your faith is your faith, and you can't take it outside of the walls of this church. And if you do, you just need to be really careful how you do it. And we may... If we believe everything the world tells us, and we've been conditioned because we've lived in the world for so long, and, and this has become the way it is, we begin to believe that our faith in God is compartmentalized to a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, or maybe when I'm reading my Bible, or maybe when I'm meditating, but, but when I'm out doing anything else, when I'm out in the world, when I, that's, that's not my faith. That's just life. My faith is just part of my life. That, you understand that's not how Paul lived his life. Paul's faith wasn't just part of his life. Paul didn't preach the gospel in his spare time from tent making. Paul made tents in his spare time from preaching the gospel. And Paul preached the gospel while he was making tents. Paul didn't didn't see himself as a tent maker. He saw himself as a servant of Christ. And whatever our vocation may be, we are to see ourselves not according to that vocation, but as servants of Christ who are privileged to have a vocation, to make tents, to earn a living, to provide for our families. But our true occupation is serving the Lord. Paul staying true to his pattern, he went to the most obvious place first. He would go to the synagogue. The synagogue was the central place of worship. This is where the worshipers of God would assemble each week. And Paul would go to worship God and to reason with the other worshipers, proclaiming to them Jesus. And it says that Paul persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And the Greek word for synagogue means literally a gathering together. 
That's what the word, it's a Greek word, and it means a gathering together. We don't know for sure when the synagogue system was started. Some people think it was started in Babylon, and maybe that, that, that is the case. But we know, we know by the first century B.C., the synagogue system was well-established all across the world where Jewish communities were. And so if you know your world history, you know that by about 750 B.C., was the first dispersion when the Assyrians came in and they carried away the northern tribes. And then again in 600 B.C., uh, the Babylonians came. And then again in 586, they came a second time. And by 586, Jews were dispersed all across Mesopotamia, all across Asia. Uh, and, and so from the, from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire, through the Greek Empire, now into the Roman Empire, where Paul is living in the Roman Empire, Jews over the centuries had been dispersed all across these empires. And wherever they went, they established synagogues. At some point in time, they begin to establish synagogues, a gathering together. This is where they would worship God. But it was more than a building. It was the people gathering. So that you didn't have a synagogue if you didn't have people. You had to have 10 Jewish men in order to establish a synagogue. So if you were in a city and you had at least 10 other Jewish men, you could establish a synagogue. And then that didn't necessarily mean you had a building. It meant that you had a formal gathering where the people of God would come together and they would worship God. Now, it, it could be a building. It, it most often was a building. But you understand it wasn't the building that made the synagogue. It was the people that made the synagogue. The Greek word for church means literally an assembly of called out ones. And Jesus uses the word church or the word we transliterate to church, ecclesia. That's what the word church is in the Greek. And it means an assembly of called out ones. What is the church? This is where the worshipers of God assemble together. But it's more like a synagogue. The church is more than a physical building. It is the saints of God assembling together. You cannot have a church without people. Because the church is not the building. The church is the people of God. So the pattern of the church is very similar to the pattern of the synagogue. And that's not an accident. The church was exclusively Jewish in the beginning. And they took the pattern that they knew, the pattern that God had established of gathering together for worship at the synagogue. They had a temple then. In Jesus' day, they had rebuilt the temple from the Babylonian destruction. So they had the second temple. But you had Jews living all over Asia. They didn't come every week to the temple. They went to the gathering, to the synagogue. It may have been a building, it may have been in a house, but it was the gathering of God's people. And when the church was established, the church followed the very same pattern. And church means the same thing. It speaks of an assembly of people. The place, the people where God assembled together to worship. And just like you can't have a synagogue without people, you can't have a church apart from people. And in a synagogue service where Paul would go, we see this pattern throughout the book of Acts here. Every time he would go to a city, he would go first to the synagogue. The synagogue service had many of the same elements that we have in our church worship. For instance, the synagogue service involved the confession of faith. They would say the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that your God is one God. And they would confess their faith throughout the scriptures, through the scriptures there in Numbers and, and in, the, in the books written by Moses that give us the law. They would have prayer. They would have scripture reading. They would always read the scripture in Hebrew. 
But by the time you get to Paul's day and age, believe it or not, not every Jew spoke Hebrew. Some grew up in these other parts of the world under Babylonian culture, Persian culture, now Greek culture. Greek was the language. So many of the people living in different parts of the world didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Even though they were Jewish, they spoke Greek. And so in the, in the synagogue service, you would always read the scripture in Hebrew, and then you would have the interpretation. If you were in Corinth, a Greek city, you would read it again in Greek. So the Greek-speaking people could understand it, the Greek-speaking Jews, who, the Jews who didn't speak Hebrew. And then you would have an address following the reading of the Scripture. And you would always read the law, and they had a three-year cycle where they would go through the law. You'd read the prophets. You'd have the writings. The Psalms were their songbook. It was their prayer book. Then after the reading of the Scripture, you'd have what's called the address. And anyone qualified could address the gathering. This is why Paul went. Now, Paul went to worship God, and when Paul was in the synagogue, and they were reading the law and reading the prophets, he understood who the law and the prophets spoke of. They spoke of Jesus, and Paul was in the synagogue worshiping Jesus, and when it was time for the address, Paul, who was eminently qualified, would begin to address the people, and he would take the scriptures that were read, and he would begin to tell the people how those scriptures are proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. Then after that, after that address by someone in the synagogue, expounding on the scriptures, there would be a blessing. This was Paul's pattern because he went to the place where people had the scripture. They were reading about Jesus, but they didn't know they were reading about Jesus. They were proclaiming Jesus through the word of God, through the law, and through the prophets, but they didn't know they were proclaiming Jesus. So Paul goes to the synagogue, the most logical place, where people are already worshiping and seeking God, and he says, just like he did in Athens, remember, I see all of these objects of worship, but I see this one that says to the unknown God, that's the God I want to talk to you about, the God that you worship that you don't know. This is what he do with the Jews. Do you know that you're proclaiming Jesus in the reading of the law, in the reading of the prophets? You are proclaiming Jesus, but you don't even know it. Let me show you how. And that's what Paul would do. And that's what we do each week in our worship service. We confess our faith, we pray, we read scripture, we address, and we bless the congregation, proclaiming the gospel and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. The difference for us is, in the church, versus the synagogue, we are the church, we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know we worship Jesus, we seek to worship Jesus, we are seeking to find out and to, to expound on how the scripture is revealing Jesus to us, still today in the synagogue, they are not worshiping Jesus, they're worshiping the God of the Old Testament, who is the father of Jesus, and they don't know that. So the synagogue was a natural place to proclaim Christ among the people already worshiping, already seeking the God of Scripture. And this is why we proclaim Christ each week among the people of God. So Paul goes to the synagogue, and it says in verse 5, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Paul was compelled by the Spirit, or Paul was compelled in his spirit, some translations may say. It, to me, it means the same thing. What does this mean? This word is complex in what it's implying here. In the ESV, it uses the word occupied. Paul was occupied with the Word of God. That is a correct way of thinking about it. But we might consider why Paul was occupied with the Word. He was occupied with the word because the spirit of God held him. That word translated compelled there means to be held on course, to hold one on course. It is the chief meaning of this word. 
And so Paul was occupied with the word because the Spirit of God held him on this course. The Spirit compelled him so that he was occupied in his spirit to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Paul, in other words, could not help himself. Paul was occupied with preaching the gospel. That's literally what it says here. He was occupied with preaching the gospel and making disciples. And this was literally Paul's occupation. He was occupied with testifying that Jesus is the Christ. So he does this in the synagogue, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, the Bible says that Paul shook his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Kind of reminds us of what the people said when they were crying, crucify him, crucify him. And they said to Pilate, let his blood be on our head. Pilate said, I don't want to do this. This is an innocent man. They said, don't worry, let his blood be on our head. And this is what Paul says when the Jews rejected Christ and rejected him, blasphemed the Christ of God and opposed his preaching of the gospel. He said, fine, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. In other words, my conscience is clean From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul understood this. There were too many souls to be saved. Paul could not continue expending his time and his energy among a people who opposed him and blasphemed Christ. Paul made it known that he had a clean conscience. When we we tell people the gospel, I want to encourage you to, to understand the difference between being a messenger and being a salesman. When I was, I used to be a salesman. I was a commissioned salesman, and one of my sales managers gave me a book called The Greatest Salesman in the World. Uh, It's real, actually, it's a great book. It's a story, and the story is about the the Apostle Paul. Um, And and it's, it it, it, it really is a good book, um, especially if you need motivation to sell and, and, and understand some things. But, but, but understand, Paul was not just a salesman. In other words, it wasn't, jobs, it wasn't Paul's job to convince people to believe in Jesus, though he did try to convince them. It was his job chiefly to deliver the message because Paul understood it was not his ability to talk someone into believing. Only God can give you faith to believe. It's God who has to change your heart. It's God who has to move on your heart. And so, Paul is the messenger here, and he made it known that he had delivered the message loudly and clearly, and his conscience was clean. He could not help that they had rejected Christ. And so, still today, we need to understand that we cannot make people believe. We deliver the message, we disciple those who are called and who are willing to receive that word. Verse 7, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So Paul's efforts in the, in the synagogue wasn't fruitless. You have two named here, Justice And Crispus, Crispus was the leader, the ruler of the synagogue. And so the very ruler, the very one who was over the synagogue, actually believed in Christ and became a disciple of the apostle Paul. But for the most part, the Jews rejected the message of the gospel. And so Paul said, because of your rejection, I go to the Gentiles, and it says here that many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Verse 9, so here again, Paul has been rejected by the Jews, and he's going to the Gentiles. When he did that before, remember in Thessalonica, it caused problems. He goes to Berea because they kick him out of Thessalonica, And the Bereans, remember, were more noble, and they heard, and they listened, and they were much more civil with Paul. 
But the Jews from Thessalonica heard that he had gone to Berea. So what did they do? They go to Berea and they stir up the people there. And Paul has to get on a ship and go across the Adriatic Sea and land in Philippi because he had been rejected. So now he is here in Corinth, and the Jews have rejected him again, and he is going to the Gentiles, and many of the Corinthians are hearing and believing the gospel. And if you're the Apostle Paul, what might you think could happen? Well, you know he's thinking, okay, am I going to get kicked out again? Are they going to riot? Are they going to kill me? Do you understand that when Paul is ministering the gospel, he's ready He's ready to die. It's not that he wanted to die, but Paul understood the consequence of preaching the gospel in the world he lived in. And he understood that not everybody was friendly to it. He'd already experienced that. But he is obedient to Christ nonetheless. But the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And God says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Paul is in this very large city of Corinth. He's been rejected by the Jews. He's going to the Gentiles. From his past experience, he's got to be wondering what could happen. But God comes to him through a vision, and he tells Paul, don't worry, Paul. I have many people in this city. And Paul understood what that meant. Paul knew that there weren't already people living for the gospel in that city because the gospel had never come to that city. Paul brought it first. What Paul understood was there are many appointed to believe in me. There are many appointed to salvation in this city. And this is why God brought Paul there. So the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. And though many people seek visions today from the scripture if we honestly read the scripture we see that visions from God are the exception and not the rule if you want a word from God then read the scripture you may not get a vision but you will have the message that God wants you to, to receive and to have I'm not saying God can't give people visions I do believe he does but I think a lot of the visions people talk about are more than likely figments of their imagination. Like Ezekiel and Jeremiah both said, you dream the dreams that you cause yourself to dream. Or you have the visions that you cause yourself to have because you want something to be so true. Listen, if God needs to speak to you in a vision, he will, and, and, and you'll know whether it's God or not. So we don't know what Paul's vision was, but we know what the message of the vision was. Don't be afraid. Speak. Don't be silent. I am with you. So imagine how reassuring that was for Paul. Think about the days that we're living in. Almost on a daily basis, I have people that I talk to who are fearful, who are uncertain, who who are just very disturbed because of everything, not just COVID, but everything that's going on. We need to be reassured in the Lord. We might not know what's going on. We might think things are uncertain, but there's nothing uncertain about God. God has everything in, in his control. God has a plan and a purpose for everything that's happening, no matter how chaotic, no matter how disastrous, no matter how tragic, no matter how dark it looks, God has a purpose in it. Now that purpose could be God executing judgment on a sinful nation that no doubt deserves it. It could be that because of her disobedience, her refusal to obey God. It could be that. But God's people have experienced that in the past. And if that's where we're at, then we trust God in the midst of that. Because God has a plan and a purpose in all of that, just like he always has with his people. So Paul obviously knew that conflict and persecution were part of and parcel of preaching the gospel in the world he lived in. But that did not stop him. 
Paul was not waiting for the assurance of safety. He was prepared to run out of town to face his persecutors, but God gave him assurance that it would be different for him in Corinth. God had a reason. Because of all the people, I have many people in this city. So we see that everything preceding was leading Paul to this very place. God was propelling Paul to Corinth where God had many people in the city. God was not telling Paul there were already practicing believers, but these were the people that were appointed unto salvation. Ephesians 1, 3 and 6, 3 through 6. I love this scripture. It, it should give us such assurance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, to him according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. How have we become accepted? He made us accepted. God had chosen these people in Corinth before the foundation of the world. And in his divine providence, God sent the apostle Paul there and those other disciples to preach the gospel so that their faith would bloom through the power of the gospel. This is what we do every day. We don't, Paul didn't know who those people were. We don't know who those people are. This is why we're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. It's what Mark writes. And you think that sounds funny, preach to every creature. But, but it's not. We are to preach to everything, to every person. We are to assume that every person needs to hear the gospel and that they will believe the gospel and be saved. It's not our place to know. It's our place to obey. And God was letting Paul know that he had many in that city. Don't be afraid to obey me, to open your mouth and proclaim the gospel. There's another reference to this previous in Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When Paul uh, and Barnabas were in Antioch, verse 48, Acts 13 says, Now when the, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So like Paul, we must not be afraid to speak. We must not keep silent. There are those all around us who have been appointed to eternal life. We don't know their names. We don't know their faces, but we know they're there. This is why we preach the gospel every week in worship. This is why we are to live the gospel through words and through deeds everywhere we go and everything that we do because it is the gospel alone that is the power of God to salvation. We live in a day and an age where preaching the gospel is no longer popular. In fact, it can create real conflict for those who are obedient to proclaim it. We must not be afraid. We must speak the truth in love. We must not keep silent for no matter the cost, God is with us. It may cost you some Facebook friends. It may get you canceled in the culture. At this point, they're not going to run you out of the city and throw rocks at you, but who knows? That day could come. We must be courageous. God has too many people in our cities and all around us. We must be in this for the long haul. Discipleship is not quick and easy. It's lifelong and often, most often, difficult. It's not complicated, but it's hard work. And it takes commitment. Parents, how hard is it raising children? How much commitment does it take to raise children? It's the same with discipleship. We're raising spiritual children. And we have to love the people we're discipling as much as we love our own biological children. And those biological children are your disciples. Just like our spiritual children are. Paul was committed to the command of Christ to disciple the nations. In verse 11, it tells us that he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul continued in Corinth before moving on to proclaim the gospel and make more disciples in more places. 
a year and a half, Paul is in Corinth preaching the gospel, making disciples. We have two letters written to the Corinthian church, uh, and we see the fruit of Paul's labors were very great in Corinth. And so this has to be our commitment, a commitment to continue where we are, a commitment to continue teaching the word of God among those around us. We are commanded by Christ to do so. This is our greatest work. It's the greatest hope we have. It's the greatest hope we can give people. It's the greatest hope we can give our nation. It should also be our greatest joy. We do this every in every context imaginable. We do it in our work. We do it in our play. We do it formally in our worship services. We do it informally in our daily lives. If we have been redeemed by Christ, we belong to Jesus. You get that, right? Your life is not your own. You belong to Jesus. This is why, even though we very often do what we want to do, we are not people who can just do what we want to do without consequence. We belong to Jesus. Our lives belong to him. And our lives should be devoted to him. That is our true occupation. To serve the Lord. Our occupation, we are servants of the Lord. I mean, how many of you watch Downton Abbey? Remember Downton Abbey? Remember all those servants that lived, what was that place called? What was that house? Oh, Downton Abbey. Well, yeah, I got in late on that thing. But it was really good. But all those servants who lived in Downton Abbey, what was their occupation? They were servants. Different age, different era, but, but it's not. This is our occupation. We are servants of the Lord. And part of our service to him has got to be obedience to him. And part of obedience to him is doing what he has commanded us to do, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. We have got to be committed to continuing that. Discipleship is daily. It's messy and it's difficult. It's accomplished through trial and error, it's accomplished through sin and repentance, through grace and mercy, through ups and downs, it's accomplished through laughter, it's accomplished through tears. It's worked out through all things in our daily lives. But discipleship cannot be accomplished apart from the word of God. We can't just talk about being disciples. Talk about making disciples. The word of God. We've got to put the word in us. We've got to wash our minds with the word. We've got to plant the seed of the word in our hearts. We've got to hide it in our heart that we might not sin against God. That's what David said. And we are no different. And if we think as believers, as those who profess faith in Christ, that we can just go through this world and live any way we want and all make it to heaven one day and it's all going to be good. We, we can't, that's not faithfulness. We didn't get here 2,000 years after the Bible passages we're reading. Luke recorded these passages in the book of Acts some 2,000 years ago. And you realize over the course of that 2,000 years, there's a line of faithfulness. There's a line of faithful men and faithful women who committed to obedience, who committed to walking in the occupation of living and preaching the gospel and making and being disciples of Jesus in obeying all that he commands, even until the end of the age. And the age hasn't ended for us yet, so we have lots of work to do. It's hard work. It could be costly work. It may cost us more than we realize right now, but the question is, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to commit to this occupation, this occupation of being servants of God. Amen. Jesus invites us to his table to partake of his body and his blood. 
his bread and his cup. And each week we do this, we proclaim just that. We proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus. We proclaim his body. We proclaim his blood. We proclaim the covenant that has been established through that blood. When we come to this table, whether we realize it or not, we are professing obedience to Christ. We all fail. This is not about living a perfect life. This is not even about big sins and little sins. This is about faithfulness. This is about obedience. And we all have times in our life where we are unfaithful. We all have times in our life daily where we are disobedient. The question is, is that the lifestyle we want to settle on? Is that the way we want to live and, and just have my faith in Christ as a, as a facade? Or do we want to be people who are occupied with the service of God, who have a desire to walk in obedience, who avail ourselves to those around us the help that's around us, the word of God, the spirit of God, to be obedient to God. When we fail, when we sin, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This table is not for perfect people. This table is for forgiven people. So as you have, and as we have already confessed our sin to God and thanked him for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, as you are trusting Jesus and you purpose in your heart to obey him and to repent of your sin and to turn from your sin, welcome to Jesus and welcome to the table. Let's all stand. Well, church, you know we're in a war. Jesus has won the victory, but that does not change the fact that we are in a spiritual warfare. It rages all around us. Some people are oblivious to it. Some people are very aware and engaged. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be aware of the world we're living in. We need to discern the times. The war is waged against the church and the people of God. And what we are experiencing all around us is not accidental. It is purposeful spiritual warfare waged by the forces of darkness. But as the people of God, as those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we need to know and remind ourselves that the attempt of the enemy to overthrow the purposes of God is a futile attempt. The light has conquered. Jesus is the resurrected, victorious Christ. He has conquered sin and death and made an open show. He has triumphed over his enemies in the cross. The outcome is not in question. Jesus is victorious, and so we are in him. We are disciples of Jesus. Therefore, we, to, we are to obey all that he has taught us. God has charged us, do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. And his promise is, for I am with you. He said to his disciples, lo, I am with you even till the end of the age. And Jesus is with his people until he comes from heaven and sets his feet on this earth again to finally put underfoot once and for all his very last enemy who is death. That day is coming. We can rest assured of that. What happens between now and then, God only knows. But we are called to faithfulness. We are called to be courageous. So church, that is your charge. Be faithful. Be courageous. Be obedient to Jesus. Amen? Amen.